The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Do you want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get more great investing content. If you're listening on YouTube, hit that like button on this video. And any other platform, your five-star rating and review are a great way to support the show. Thank you for your support. Today, I'm going to talk about the philosophy of concentrated investing. And quick note before we get started... It is raining where I am recording, and I am trying to edit this out after recording. So if the quality of the audio is a little bit lower than normal, um, I just hope you'll forgive me and ask that you deal with that today. Um, my hope is that I can edit it out in post-processing, but basically it's either record the show with some potential sound bleed from rain or not record the show. So I am going to try and get this show out because it's been too long since I've put out a show. And so that is my goal today. So philosophy of concentrated investing. Today's central question that we're trying to answer and trying to think through is one that every investor eventually has to ask themselves. It's a, it's a question that we all must consider and I don't believe it's a question that has a static answer. And so that means that we need to think about it philosophically. We need to think through the values and the thought processes that go into the decision. And today's question is, how many stocks should you own? How many stocks should you own? I think this is a very important question because the number of positions in your portfolio is going to have a large influence on your ultimate results. For better or worse, the number of positions you take, the number of stocks that you own, the number of bonds that you own, whatever it may be, the number of positions you take and how much money you put into those positions will have a large impact on your eventual returns. So you need to understand why you're making the decisions that you are. And I think most people would benefit from having a greater understanding of why they're doing the things that they are instead of simply going about the process, going through the habitual steps that they take. And so <laughs> this is an area I've been thinking about a lot for myself. It's been, I've been thinking a lot about my portfolio and I do run a concentrated portfolio. Um, but it's important to know why you're doing it, how you're making that decision, what the incremental inputs are to that. And so I'm just going to explore that. I've had previous episodes about concentration versus diversification into some of the strategies of that. Um, but today I want to get into more of the philosophy, more of the thinking. What are we doing when we concentrate our portfolio? Why are we doing that? Um, and that sort of thing. So I hope it's valuable to you. If that sounds interesting. Please continue listening. If not, you know, you're welcome to wait for the next episode. So again, our question today, how many stocks should you own? When I first posed my, this to myself as I was preparing for today's show, two follow-up questions and two follow-up kind of potential answers filled in here. So if I'm thinking about how many stocks should I own, the first idea is, well, maybe I should own as many as I can that meet my hurdle rate. 
If my hurdle rate is to own stocks that are going to provide me a 10% rate of return, then maybe I buy as many stocks that I find that I think can meet a 10% rate of return. If that's five stocks, I own five stocks. If that's 10, I own 10. And if it's 50, I own 50. With the idea being that simply the more ideas that I have that meet my hurdle rate, it reduces my risk because I have more stocks. That's your central diversification tenant. Um, and so if I think that there's 50 ideas that meet that hurdle rate, that's how many I own. So that's one way of thinking about it is that you should just own as many stocks that can meet your hurdle rate as possible. And so with people with different hurdle rates, if you have a lower hurdle rate, maybe you end up owning more stocks. If you have a higher hurdle rate, maybe you own less stocks. That's one way that came to mind when I thought about it. The second way was I should only own the best opportunities available. So this is this is a shift in how we think about a portfolio. So instead of simply having a hurdle rate, now we're talking about opportunity cost. Now, both of these mental models, hurdle rate and opportunity cost, are valuable for investors. And you can't simply fixate on one of them. And so I think this is a conversation that you have to have with yourself and with your portfolio, really, to understand what are the drivers for how you're making this decision. Because if you're thinking from an opportunity cost perspective, now you have to look at your portfolio and say, should I own stock 20 or should I put more money into stock number one, two, and three? And if you say, okay, instead of owning stock 20, I want to own more of stock one. Okay, well, then you sell stock 20 and now you have 19 stocks. But then you should if you're being consistent, then ask yourself the next question. Should I own stock number 19 or should I own more of stock one, two, and three? And if again, if, if you decide that you want to own more of stock one, two, and three, then you need to sell stock number 19 and put that money into one, two, and three. And it, as you continue to answer that question, eventually you're going to reach an equilibrium where you might get down to say 12 stocks and say, okay, should I own stock 12 or should I have more of one, two, and three? And you might say, oh, well, maybe I should own stock 12 because that's where I'm comfortable. And I think each person has to answer this for themselves. There's no clear first principles answer for how many stocks should you own especially when you're doing opportunity costs because opportunity cost fluctuates. What might be the right number today is not the right number tomorrow because the opportunities have changed. If you have five ideas that are head and shoulders better than the rest of your ideas, then you might end up with a more concentrated portfolio than when valuations are higher and perhaps you have 20 ideas that are relatively similar in conviction potential return, and potential risk. So again, what I'm trying to focus on in today's show is let's talk through the mental models. Let's talk through the thinking that goes into these decisions because that's going to help you make a better decision. So we kind of covered you have the hurdle rate, which the lower your hurdle rate, the more stocks you're going to own. The higher your hurdle rate, the less. And then you have opportunity cost. So the better the opportunities are at the top of your portfolio, the larger the risk, the larger the potential loss in return for owning more stocks and not concentrating in your best ideas. If there's a substantial gap between your best idea and your worst idea, that gap is then the constraining force, the opportunity cost that, that constrains how many stocks you're going to own. And I think, as I've really worked through this mentally, that that changes over time. And that it's possible that having a set number of stocks that you're going to own is not the best way to handle a portfolio. And that by limiting yourself artificially to say, I own five stocks, or I own 10 stocks, or I own 20 stocks, could prevent you from making the decisions that allow you to optimize the future returns and the future risk of your portfolio based upon what's happening day to day. Now, there's value to artificially restricting yourself to saying, maybe I won't be able to make those decisions 
in a short period of time. When push comes to shove, when the stock market is dropping 10 or 20% in a week, I won't be able to think clearly enough to adjust my conviction at the right moment. And so I'm going to artificially constrain myself based upon best practices and general rules. I think that's also a valuable idea. Having those artificial constraints might not be the optimal way of managing a portfolio, but it might be good enough. So if it's not, if it's sufficient, then that could be good as well. So now we're thinking through the mental model of satisficing, which is really that once you have a strategy that is good enough to meet your needs, you don't necessarily need an optimal strategy. If you need 8% annual returns to meet your financial goals, but optimally with your skills and your understanding and your focus, you could get 15% annual returns. It may not be worth seeking the optimal portfolio as long as you can easily meet a 10% return and you only need 8%. You're still beating what you need. And so having a sufficiently good strategy can often be better because in seeking an optimal portfolio, you might end up worse. And so you need to, you need to balance these things. So how do you balance those? How do you balance the outputs of your process, you know, which, which are like the hurdle rate and the opportunity cost and how you're deciding between multiple ideas and how many you should own? Well, I've thought of a few constraints. And I think these constraints affect everyone. They affect you whether you're an individual investor, they affect you whether you're a professional investor, and they affect you when you're making these decisions. But it's the philosophy around them that really is the important part. How do we think about these? How do they affect us? So the constraints that I'm going to outline are three. First, time. Second, circle of competence. And third, conviction. Now, these aren't completely independent variables. Some of them are dependent upon the other ones, and so they overlap a little. And for that, I just think that's how life works. It's not perfectly cut and dry how these influence them. But I think there's three constraints here that apply to everyone when you're developing a portfolio. And so when we think about the first one, time. The more time you have to research any one investment idea, the more likely it is that you're going to be able to make a good decision about whether it's a good or a bad investment. But time isn't unlimited. You don't have unlimited time. You can't spend a year just trying to determine whether one idea is a good stock. And I'm not saying just researching one idea. I'm just saying like if you only turn over one stock a year, and you live optimistically for 100 years, you might only look at 100 stocks in your entire lifetime. But if you have a 1% hit rate for what's a successful idea, then you've only found one stock in your entire life. So what you have to do is think about, you need to optimize your time. You need to be quick to eliminate ideas. When So you need to quickly recognize when an idea is bad so you can spend more time on ideas that are good and may be potentially great because you don't have unlimited time. Even if you're a professional investor or a professional investing analyst or a professional portfolio manager, you don't have unlimited time. You might have 40 hours a week, 60 hours a week, 80 hours a week to spend finding ideas. But that's still a limited amount of time. You know, if you spend 40 hours a week looking at ideas and it takes you an hour to determine whether an idea is good or bad or worth passing on, well, now you can look at 40 ideas a week, 2,000 ideas a year. Well, okay, that's, that's pretty good, but it's not unlimited. And what is the depth of understanding you have? And what else aren't you doing when you're spending your time on those things? So your time is limited. I'm not going to just spend an hour on time because I think everyone clearly understands this. But you need to think it through because it's important, especially if you're an individual investor and you have much less time than that. 
if you have five hours a week or 10 hours a week, like I currently do to figure out these things, then you need to be very judicious with your time. You need to be very focused on making a quick first judgment on a stock because it is better to pass quickly on a stock that you don't think will meet your hurdle than it is to spend a lot of time on something that was never going to be invested in anyway. Because what you don't want to do is if you have a limited amount of time, if you're investing a lot of time in ideas that aren't going to make your your into your portfolio, what you're doing is you're setting up yourself to make a mistake. Because every investor, every person struggles with the idea that you have sunk costs. And it doesn't matter if you understand the mental model of sunk cost, the more time you invest into something, the more likely you are to buy it simply because you've put the time in. So if you have 10 hours a week to invest and you've put 50 hours into studying this investment and you get to the end of it, you might still buy it even if it's a bad idea because you're going to look back and say, well, I spent 50 hours. I spent five weeks studying this company. And that five weeks is gone. It doesn't matter going forward. But you can now think back about all the ideas you didn't focus on instead. And so it's not that spending a lot of time on investment research is bad. No, it's really good. But you need to focus it on the right ways, which means you need multi-steps in your process. You need to have a process that differentiates between ideas that are going to make it into your portfolio or ideas that are going to make it onto your watch list and ideas that aren't. So, I mean, I had an episode, episode 109, where I talked about how much time you should research a stock before buying, and I go into that in a lot more depth. But just think about it. If you have more time, When we think about how many stocks you should own, let's relate it back to that question. The more time you have, the more stocks you should probably own. All else equal. If everything else we talk about is equal, if you have more time, you can probably own more stocks. But if you have less time, you have to own a comparatively fewer number of stocks if you want to have similar convictions, similar hurdle rate success, similar levels of risk reward, you're going to need to own less stocks just just because you have less time. The next constraint is circle of competence. When you start out investing, which certainly applies to to a significant portion of this audience, um, is relatively newer on the investment staying, although we have also a lot of people with many years or decades of experience. But when you get started as an investor, you have a relatively small circle of competence. It's this idea that you need to focus on the stuff you understand and only buy what you understand. Well, when you get started, there's not that many ideas that you can seriously evaluate. Maybe you can only evaluate the companies that you've personally bought something from. So maybe you drink Coca-Cola and you can evaluate Coca-Cola. Maybe you go to Starbucks. So you can evaluate Starbucks as an investment because you inherently understand what they do. But if you pull up a bank or you pull up an insurance company or you pull up a manufacturing company, you can't understand their business because you haven't studied them enough yet. You don't have the background. You don't have the understanding in order to do that. That's totally fine, but it means that the circle of competence is a constraint on your portfolio. The smaller your circle of competence, the smaller the number of stocks you can own because you can only own stocks that you understand. Now, some people might say the opposite. The more you understand, then the fewer stocks you could own because now you I better understand the relative opportunities of those ideas. But I think it's really important is that by having a bigger circle of competence, now you can own more stocks because you're less likely to make a mistake in owning them. It's not that it's good to only own one, two, three, four, five stocks and have those all be in the retail industry because that's all you understand. It's that you can't 
be a true investor if you don't understand what you're buying. That's where you're going to make a mistake. And so you need to work on expanding that circle of competence over time so you can own more stocks. But don't put the cart before the horse. You need to grow to only buy the amount of stocks you understand. So I've been quite repetitive on that one. And so it's something I need to work on. But when I think about that, I think this gets turned around in many times in the way that we talk about investing. We talk about it that the more you know, the fewer stocks you can own. And I think that has a measure of truth to it, especially when you're thinking in terms of the Charlie Munger aspect. But I also think there's this counter argument that the less you know, the less you should buy. And certainly, I don't want to let people putting in a large amount of their portfolio into stocks when they don't know what they're doing yet. Um, however, you have alternatives. And one of the best alternatives I've seen is the idea of, okay, let's say I'm only able to evaluate. and I've only found three good ideas that I know that are within my circle of competence. But at the same time, I'm not Charlie Munger level of skilled at investing. So I don't want to put 33% of my portfolio into this. I want it to still be diversified because I'm still learning and I don't have the conviction, which we'll get to next. So here, I think it makes sense from a circle of competence standpoint to say, okay, well, if you can only find three ideas based upon your current circle of competence, then don't own more than those three ideas. However, you can still put just 3% or 5% of your portfolio into those ideas and say you have 5% in idea number one, 5% in idea number two, and 5% in idea number three. That's 15% of your portfolio. Well, what do you do with the other 85%? Well, I think it makes total sense to put the other 85% into something like an index fund while you're trying to learn and grow that circle of competence. So here you're not simply saying, okay, well, I have to concentrate because I only have those number of ideas. No, but it does mean that the amount of stocks you should own is lower. What I'm trying to differentiate here is while our central question is how many stocks you should own, that is a different question than how much money you should put into each stock. Those are two different things. And I think sometimes we equate them to be the same, but they're very different. So, Circle of competence limits the number of stocks you should own, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you should focus on being highly concentrated in those stocks. So let's talk about conviction. So conviction here is key. And again, conviction, I think, is in some ways a dependent variable. It's related to time and circle of competence, but it's also very different. Conviction is something that is hard to quantify, but it's incredibly important to this how many stocks you should own question from the concept of position sizing. So we've talked about time and circle of competence and it's just how many ideas could you have that kind of like meet your hurdle rate. But conviction kind of falls under this best opportunities available, really focusing on the opportunity cost side. And when you think about conviction here, it's really this idea of how confident am I that I'm going to meet my hurdle rate? How confident am I that this stock is going to perform well? What is the level of risk to reward relationship? And so you're going to have higher conviction if it's an asymmetric opportunity where there's an incredibly high reward with very low risk. For instance, if, if you think a stock could be a 10-bagger, go up 10x but you think that there's almost zero risk of bankruptcy and almost zero risk of losing money over a three, five, or 10-year time frame, then I'm going to have very high conviction in that idea. Well, if I have a high conviction idea and I have a low conviction idea, my personal view is that those two should not have the same amount of money dedicated to them. I should have more money in my highest conviction ideas and less money in my lowest conviction ideas. 
But it's not just relative. Conviction isn't simply, I have higher conviction in stock A and lower conviction in stock C. There's also an absolute level to this. Conviction has to be at a certain level to justify certain amounts of portfolio allocation. So it's possible, depending upon how you construct your portfolio, that your largest position is 3% of your portfolio. It's also possible that the largest position in your portfolio is 5% of your portfolio. Just like the largest position in your portfolio could be 10% or 20% of your portfolio. But what's critical here is that there's a substantial difference in the amount of conviction someone has, if they're doing it properly, in when their top idea is 20% of their portfolio versus when their top idea is 3% of their portfolio. Those are two very different portfolio construction philosophies, and they're based upon different conviction rates. If the person with a 3% position has the same amount of conviction on an absolute basis as someone with a 20% position, the person with the 20% position is going to make more money when that idea is successful. And that's critical because what that's what you're trying to optimize here. That's what you're trying to improve is you're trying to build a situation where you're able to resist downturns where you're able to resist high stock price growth and prevent you from selling and you need to have conviction to do so. So conviction correlates with position size but is inversely correlated to the number of stocks you could own because if you have more conviction you're going to have to own less stocks in order to properly allocate position sizing to a stock. When you put 20% of your portfolio into a position, that is a statement of high conviction in the future performance of that business. And I think it you can build a portfolio where you have a single stock that's 20% of your portfolio and still own 30 stocks. And you can build a portfolio where you have five stocks that are 20% of your portfolio, and that's a five-stock portfolio. And the difference here is that conviction works on an individual stock basis, while time and circle of competence are working on a portfolio basis. So conviction is going to limit the size of your portfolio number of stocks only in the sense that you have multiple stocks meeting a certain absolute level of conviction. And the relative conviction allows you to determine how much to put into each stock relative to that high amount. So conviction is important on a relative and an absolute basis. So again, your constraints are time, circle of competence, and conviction. So let's get into another aspect of this philosophy of concentrated investing. When I first started investing, one of the big influencers that I had as an investor, as I was learning, uh, was Joshua Kinnon. So Joshua Kinnon has a website. I believe it's joshuakinnon.com. He has since started um, an investment firm where people can invest with him. Uh, But I remember as I learned to be an investor, reading his stuff, I've read everything he's written um, that's available publicly on his website probably multiple multiple times. And during that process, as I was learning to be an investor through that, through practice and development, I began with this idea of what I call a collector of businesses. Some people collect trading cards. Some people collect Beanie Babies. Some people collect rocks. Some people collect quarters. Some people collect clothing historical artifacts, whatever. But when I thought about what his philosophy was, his philosophy was almost as a collector of business, a connoisseur of fine companies, high quality companies. And so he almost wanted to own companies because of the beauty and strength of the enterprise. And that there was something to being able to say, I am an owner of Disney. 
I am an owner of Johnson and Johnson. I'm an owner of Clorox. And that it wasn't so much that you needed to be the sole owner of stuff, but just to be able to say, there's something special about this company, about this business, about how they make money, about the beauty of the enterprise that lends me to collecting them over time. And so when when I find a business that meets the criteria I seek, I collect it. I want to buy some shares. And it was less about an ideal level of concentration and more about this idea that as you find companies that meet your thresholds, you should buy them. And that it was really that first philosophy. You should own as many that meet your hurdle rate. Now, if they eventually fail to meet your hurdle rate, then you might make an adjustment. But it was really that over time, the number of stocks you were going to own is going to increase because you're going to learn to evaluate more companies. You're going to find more companies that you think are beautiful in the sense that that's the best way I can describe it, uh, that have these economics, that have these characteristics that are so profoundly abnormal and good that they're worth owning and that there's something intrinsically valuable to owning those businesses. So when I first started, I, I tended to adopt that philosophy. I thought it was quite powerful to say, this is one of the best businesses on earth, and so I want to own it. Now, since then, I've changed, and I've become more focused on optimizing my portfolio. And I think when you're a collector of businesses, you're not necessarily optimizing for highest returns, um, but you're optimizing for minimum portfolio regret, which is still a very valuable thing to optimize for. But I leave it to you here because I want you to think, would you like to be a collector of businesses? I think this is a very valuable philosophy. I think it's a very good one. And I think people could do quite well if they take that philosophy. Um, it's one I've held in the past, but no longer currently do. Um, and as I concentrated my portfolio, I ended up selling stocks that I really liked um, because primarily due to valuation, because I was owning them for the beauty of the enterprise and not because I thought the future returns were going to be high. So let's get into some hypotheticals here. I know I'm already 30 minutes in, but I think these are important ways to really think about these things because if you don't ask the right questions, I think you don't get the right answers. So the first question I want to ask is imagine for a second that you own a 5 to 10 stock portfolio. Over the weekend, it's announced that all 10 of the companies in your portfolio are merging and will be subsidiaries under a single capital allocator that you like. Do you make any portfolio changes? So you still own the exact same portfolio, the exact same companies, but now it's only one stock and not 10. So I want you to think about that. And I want you to think it through as I talk through some of these issues that I think come up. So... The first thing and the most important thing to realize is that as a business owner, nothing's really changed for you. If you think about it from the idea that you're trying to own good businesses that are diversified, that have different business models so that you can get cash flows coming in at different times and that your volatility is reduced by having different types of businesses and not from having different types of stocks, then I don't know that you make portfolio changes. I don't know that there's an importance in understanding that the business operations in the stock are different. And if you're an investor, you care about the fundamentals of the business and not the volatility of the stock price. And I specifically didn't say the volatility of the fundamentals. I'm talking about the fundamentals of the business and the volatility of the stock price because it's very rare to hear anyone talk about volatility of fundamentals versus what they're really talking about is how much did the stock move. And if you have one stock, more likely volatility is going to be higher, but it's only in the stock price, usually. So the obvious example of where this comes into play is Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway is a collection of dozens of businesses that 
Warren Buffett has acquired over time and brought into a single stock. But it's still a huge collection of businesses. For all intents and purposes, when you own Berkshire Hathaway, you own an index fund without any expense ratio. Which is why, you know, with my example from earlier, where perhaps people wanted to own only like three stocks at 5% and fill the remaining 85% of their portfolio, that instead of an index fund, I think it's reasonable to say, okay, well, maybe that should be 85% in Berkshire Hathaway stock and 15% in my three stock portfolio until I can expand it. And then as you need to buy more stocks, you sell down the index or you sell down the Berkshire and you buy more stocks. This is what I have done personally in the past. When I made the decision to become more heavily invested um, into picking my own stocks, building a concentrated portfolio, and I decided I didn't want to own some of those collector of business type things, and I was going to reduce my holdings and things that I had low conviction on. I sold them, but I wasn't comfortable owning holding cash for a long period of time. So instead, I felt that I would own Berkshire Hathaway stock as my cash substitute. Now, certainly it's not exactly like cash, but if I'm holding it for a long period of time, I figured in general, it's fairly stable. It functions the same as an index fund, but I don't have to pay a fee to own Berkshire Hathaway stock. And during that holding period, I get basically Warren Buffett working for me to make my money become more valuable. So that's what I did. Now, I, now I've since sold down all that position. I run my own portfolio much more concentrated, and I no longer need that crutch for my investing. But when you're getting started, I found it valuable for myself. So I think that Warren Buffett is clearly a business owner. You could call him an investor, but he's clearly a business owner. And as a business owner, he's comfortable having 90% of his wealth in Berkshire Hathaway stock. In part, you could say because he controls the company, but also because it's not simply one company. It's dozens of companies all working together to grow over time. And that diversification is valuable to him. Now, the key aspect here, of course, is it's under a single capital allocator. And that's the crux, is that there's a clear benefit from having multiple capital allocators if you are not the capital allocator because it reduces the risk, a catastrophic risk of something like fraud or theft um, or a really bad decision by one person. So if you own 10 stocks through each 10% of your portfolio, if one of the 10 capital allocators makes a really bad decision, wipes out the value of the company, then you lose 10% of your company, but or 10% of your portfolio. But if that same capital allocator owns 100% of your portfolio, they could wipe out 100% of your portfolio. And this can be true even if the businesses are separate subsidiaries because they could for instance, take out debt to a high degree that's borrowed against the subsidiaries and could wipe out the equity of the company. Things like that could happen. So it would certainly matter that a comp- it's a capital allocator that you like. And if it isn't, then you would need to sell some of the stock to reduce your exposure, I think. So the next thing, though, here that we should consider is a second hypothetical that I think relates to this. And for me, it's this question. What is the highest level of conviction an individual investor should be willing to place in a single stock when you're buying? And specifically, thinking about it in terms of non-special situations, you know, long-term holdings, core holdings, something like that. Probably at some point, you have a catastrophic risk here that's too high even if you have an edge. And so it relates clearly to the example we just did. You know, if you had, but now I'm talking kind of like a single company. If there's a single company, how much money is too much to put into that company? So why am I ignoring special situations? Well, special situations, um, as shown clearly in the past by um, people like Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett, sometimes could have a very high certainty of success such that putting an incredibly high percentage of your portfolio in them um, 
can be prudent. Um, Charlie Munger in the past has put over 100% of his portfolio, including borrowing money, into certain situations like takeovers by um, governments that are virtually guaranteed to succeed. And if you can get those at a price that is substantially below the acquisition price, it's basically a guaranteed rate of return, no different than buying a bond. Um, If the U.S. government was buying company X for $100 a share um, and that was closing in a month and you were able to buy it at $95 a share, then you could guarantee a 5% rate of return within the month. Plus, you know, if you can borrow some of the money to do that, you could have an incredibly high rate of return on your portfolio. So it can be worth it to put everything you have into something like that if there's no chance of failure. And and if it's a government, it's very low risk and stuff like that. So we're excluding that. We're, we're saying, okay, this isn't some weird special situation where we can have virtually assured success. And we're talking about, this is a normal stock. You're buying some stock in the S&P 500. You're buying some stock somewhere else. What's how much money is it makes sense regardless of your circle of competence, regardless of your level of conviction, at what point is it too high? I think in some ways people have to answer this for themselves. But you start to come into problems here because when you think only in terms of a single investment, you begin to start missing some of the reasons for portfolio-wide decision-making. Presumably, there is almost always a stock that you think is better than everything else you own. And whether you're asking yourself the question or not, you could always ask yourself, why you're not selling stocks that you don't like as much and just putting all or most of your money into your best idea. And this is a question that, again, follows directly on opportunity cost, but really is portfolio allocation. And you're thinking, there probably should be a point that regardless of however much, however good an idea is, and however low the risk is, that you should not go above a certain point. Now, I recently posed this question to Jeff Gannon on the Focus Compounding podcast because I wanted to get his views before speaking about it here and kind of be able to respond and contrast some of those. And his view is basically, it's like, well, Presumably, even in a non-special situation, you should be willing to put 100% of your investments into a single stock if you're thinking in a non-static portfolio sense. And I think this is a very strong addition to the discussion, and so I'm going to expand on it here. Um, When you think about your portfolio, are you thinking about it in a static manner, or are you thinking about it in... Um, a dynamic manner because when you buy a stock and let's say you put 20% of your portfolio into that stock, you're not putting 20% of your portfolio into that stock forever. What you're doing is you're saying 20% of my portfolio today is in that stock and then that amount, that percentage allocation is going to change over time. So if you believe a stock is worth 20% of portfolio, what does that actually mean? So here we're going to go for an example, because if you're not using numbers, it's really hard to communicate what I'm saying. So let's say you have a portfolio and your portfolio is $100,000. And so a 20% position is $20,000. So when you buy the stock, you put $20,000 into it. Now, a few years goes by and now your portfolio is worth $200,000. If the stock price hasn't changed, then you still only have $20,000 in that stock. But now that's a 10% position and not a 20% position. So you have to think, are you thinking about your portfolio from the terms of cost basis, or are you thinking about it in terms of market value? Now, I think both have value um, as a means of helping you. If you think in terms of cost basis, you can avoid the issue of over-allocating to a bad business by doing something like 
averaging down. For instance, if you buy 20%, then it falls to 10%, and you buy it up to 20% again, and then it falls to 10% again, and you buy it up to 20% again. Now you could be looking at the pact where you might have put half your portfolio into a company um, and continued to lose money on it, even though you've never it's never been more than 20% of your market value of your portfolio but it could have been 50% of the cost basis and so there you can get into some traps if you're only using market value on the other hand if you only use cost basis then it's really hard to manage the actual portfolio because what's going to happen is you might put um basically no let me rephrase that if you're thinking only in terms of market value, you can over allocate to bad ideas. But if you only think in terms of cost basis, you can under allocate to good ideas. Um, and so you need to really think of things through because if companies are successful and they're growing quickly, then it can be very hard to distinguish. So that same example, um, let's say you had $100,000, you put 20% into a company. It's $20,000 cost basis, $20,000 market value. You'd fast forward three to five years, something like that. Now you have a market um, value of your portfolio is $200,000, but 100000 of it is that stock. So now the market value is 50% of your portfolio, but the cost basis is 10% of your portfolio. What do you do? Are you over-allocated or under-allocated? Well, you could argue it has nothing to do with either of those numbers because it all is dependent upon the valuation. That's how I think about it. But the market value clearly matters because now you have an opportunity cost problem. You cannot buy a new 20% portfolio on more than two investments because you're already at 50% of your portfolio. Um, so you need to really think of through and how to manage those things. For me, I think there is a point where the cat risk is too high. There are always going to be risks with any individual company that you cannot control. And this is true even if you're a majority shareholder. Now, if you're a majority shareholder, it's minimized to a large degree because you can take personal control. Um, and while there's still stuff outside your control, even if you're the CEO, um, it's much less so. But I think that there is a limit to how much you should own. And I don't know what that is right now. And so we're thinking kind of philosophically, but I wouldn't be surprised if that number is 90%, 80%, something like that. Um, where regardless of how confident you are, regardless of how much conviction you are, regardless of how much time you spend on investment, there's a max at which you should put into a stock when you're buying it um, because it's just too concentrated. The last way I want to talk about this before closing out the show is really thinking about this idea that concentration can fall under like the way you see yourself. So the number of stocks you own is dependent on how you view yourself as an investor. And I think this is really brought down in a few follow-up questions. First is, is it possible to produce alpha? Alpha is this idea that you can beat the index. Um, if it's if it is possible to produce alpha, then you're and you say yes, then you're more likely to want to concentrate. If it's not possible to produce alpha, then you're more likely to diversify. Um, are you a good investor? If you say yes, then you're more likely to want to concentrate, and if you say no, you're more likely to diversify. And then. The last question here comes around related to the conviction idea again. Do you have high conviction in each individual stock you're buying, or do you have low conviction? If you have high conviction, you're more likely to concentrate. And if you have low conviction, you're more likely to diversify. Some of the best investors I know diversify, and it's not because they're bad investors. It's because they're buying stocks with low conviction but high asymmetric upside. And that seems counterintuitive, but particularly amongst the deep value crowd, that's how it operates. So I think I've covered everything I want to talk about today. I'm going to leave you just with the question we started with. How many stocks should you own? 
how many stocks should you own? This is an individual question. I don't believe or I have yet to find individual universal laws and rules of investing that dictate the exact amount of stocks you should own. I think it is both dynamic, which means it's not constant across time, but I also think it fluctuates amongst the single investor because the amount of time they have changes, the amount of their circle of competence changes, and their conviction fluctuates by each individual stock that they analyze. So my answer to the question is you should own the number of stocks that allows you to sleep at night, that maximizes your potential returns, minimizes your regret, and that allows you to meet your hurdle rate while satisfying your financial goals. I hope that's been helpful to you. The full show notes for this episode, including my outline for today's podcast, are available at doiinvesting.org slash episode 120. Please remember this listener supported podcast. If you've gained value from today's content, please consider supporting the show financially as a patron. You can become a patron at doiinvesting.org slash P-A-T-R-O-N. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.